Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. While you're doing that, I forgot to mention, Oscar had a birthday last week, the 19th. Um, He is one of the two-thirds of the congregation whose birthday falls in July, August, September. And we're grateful for that. Also, I've heard from different ones of you that sometimes you cannot hear me during the sermon. And if that's the case, please put your hand up to your ear and I will try to speak more loudly. We've come to the last part of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as we've seen, verse 11 is the key to these last verses when he says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. As what has been written thus far has been written by a scribe or professional secretary based on Paul's dictation. Now Paul takes the stylus or the pen in hand and he writes himself the last portion of the letter. And in doing so, he not only confirms that what was written by the scribe was what Paul said. You know, somebody just didn't make this up and put Paul's name on it. But also in bringing the letter to the close, he emphasizes certain points that he has made in his letter. And to some degree, he summarizes what his letter says, which I will try to do as well. It may seem at the outset in verses 12 and 13 that these closing words are merely another opportunity for Paul in his own hand now to launch an attack on the men from Jerusalem who have an agenda that is wrong on all counts, as we've seen. Look, if you would, at verses 12 and 13. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your flesh. Their agenda, as Paul sees it, is that they wanted the Galatians to accept the law, particularly circumcision, as necessary for being a part of the family of God. And thus, these men from Jerusalem have gone to Galatia after Paul and Barnabas had preached and people were converted there. And now they try to, in a sense, reconvert these people to their point of view. And why would they do this? Well, Paul gives us several reasons. They want to make a good impression outwardly. That is, they want to impress the folks back home to be able to say we converted X number of Gentile believers to our point of view. And Paul uses the word compel, which doesn't speak of physical force, but of moral force, that somehow they pressured, were trying to pressure these Gentiles, they were trying to bully them into accepting their point of view. The second reason why they did this is they did not want to be persecuted. In in chapter 5, Paul writes, Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Paul tells the Galatians, if you preach the gospel, if you preach the cross, you will be persecuted. The false teachers don't want to be persecuted, therefore they don't preach the cross, they preach circumcision. The third reason that Paul gives is that they are hypocrites. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised obey the law. This is a recurring theme throughout this letter. No one is able to keep the law. Uh, You cannot. And these men should know that if they are experts in the law. And yet somehow they are trying to compel the Gentile believers to accept their point of view. And the fourth reason is they, and it comes full circle, they wanted to boast about their conquests, their conversions among the Galatians. It's all about self-promotion. Self-promotion of the worst kind. They want to be able to boast that the Galatians have been circumcised. Boast about your flesh. 
Now these two verses, as I said, may seem to be just another attack on these men from Jerusalem. But in reality, I think in these verses we find ideas or thoughts or themes that Paul has touched on thus far in the book and that he will now between verse 14 and the end of the book. The obvious connection is the verb boast. Uh, So we read in verse 13 that they may boast about your flesh, which is followed immediately by verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This opens the door to a number of issues touched on in these last verses, which Paul has dealt with earlier in the letter. Um, Each one of them could be the subject of a sermon. Um, I will try to go through them briefly. The first thing is the centrality of the cross. If you look at verse 12, Paul says the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul's view, verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The men from Jerusalem want nothing to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. They want to avoid persecution. And we have to say that on a purely human level, this makes complete sense. As I said last week, Paul's statement, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, is so counterintuitive. The cross represented death by crucifixion. It represented a disgraceful death, not simply in the Roman world, but in the Jewish way of thinking, because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The cross represented the power of the Roman Empire. Why would Paul then boast in the cross of Christ? In this letter, Paul has written about five different entities that are crucified. I don't know if you've caught this as we've gone through. The first is Paul himself in that famous verse, that familiar verse, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Um, In our study of the passage, we saw that in the verse that preceded it, and in verse number 20, Paul makes three similar assertions. I have died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. While these statements are similar, they are not identical, they point to the fact that the previous identity, who Paul was before he came to faith in Christ, that is now set aside. This is what Paul, in fact, if you look at chapter 2, this is what Paul is saying to Peter and the men from Jerusalem who come up and say, listen, we can't eat with the Gentile believers. We are going to separate ourselves. And Paul is saying... No, when we come to faith in Christ, we have been crucified. That old person who we are as a Jew separate from the Gentiles, that person is dead. That person has been crucified. The end of that identity should be final. I died, Paul says, I have been crucified, I no longer live. The old identity apart from God must be put aside and a new identity which is marked by being in Jesus Christ, united with Christ. It's made possible by love. This is who we are. As I said when we went through the passage, the the issue is not the loss of personal identity. I am nothing now. No. It is who you were is to be set aside and you become a new person in Jesus Christ. So Paul is the first person who is mentioned in this book as being crucified. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, we have the second, and that is Jesus Christ himself. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you 
Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This is what the gospel is all about. And the way that Paul writes this, as we've seen, uh, is not to characterize Jesus as someone who is still on the cross, but as someone who was, in fact, crucified, and then he was buried, he died, he was buried, and then he was raised from the grave. He is the crucified and the risen one. I think, and I said this when we went through this, I think that the impact on this is, is somewhat weaker with us because we are so familiar with it, but also we don't have crucifixion practice today. and We're not familiar with the practice. And if you think about it, we don't always associate crime and punishment, at least not immediately. You know, if somebody does a crime, who knows how many years down the road before this person is actually punished for what they do. The public horror and the public shame of crucifixion is lost on us. But the Galatians knew, the people of the Mediterranean basin knew. As one writer put it, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it. They knew how to, they knew how to do it. They were extremely effective. Their empire was built on it. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ was crucified. It is central to all other crucifixions, all other aspects of the cross. So, first it is Paul who is crucified with Christ. Then it is Jesus who is crucified. These are not in order you know, of importance, but as Paul mentions them. The third is found in chapter 5, verse 24. And this is the flesh. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, or to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified. Now he says, My flesh, I have crucified my flesh with its desires. In verse 20 of chapter 2, something has happened to us. Here in chapter 5, it is something that we are to do. We discuss this. Is Paul saying that somehow the Christian life is, after all, something we have to work for? And the answer to this is very important. Paul does not suggest here or anywhere else that somehow something we do contributes to the work of Christ. But if we belong to Christ, that old identity has been set aside. Well, it doesn't want to go away that easily. And so it is something the flesh must, in fact, be put to death over and over again. Are we responsible for this? Well, on the one hand, we would say yes. We are to walk in the Spirit. But on the other hand, we would say no. We can't do this on our own. But there needs to be an awareness that, okay, this thing keeps creeping up. These things keep creeping up. Things I should not do. Things I should not want to do. And I need to put these things to death. We need to remember that our flesh is our humanity apart from the work of God. And our flesh is dependent upon the work of God. And therefore, when we put to death these things, we cannot do it on our own. The fruit of the Spirit is not something I can do if I just try hard enough. If I just sort of grit my teeth that somehow I can produce these things. This is something that the Spirit does in us. But I'm not to be passive. I'm not just to sit back and let, hopefully let the Spirit do his work in me. I am, in fact, am to put my flesh, the evil desires that I have, the things that want me to be separate from God, I am to crucify those things. The fourth thing that is crucified 
is the world. And this we see in our text in verse 14. Through whom the world has been crucified to me. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. The fifth is Paul again. And we've come full circle. Paul says, an eye to the world. In the world being crucified to Paul, a barrier has been placed between the world, which has the laws, its principle. We can do this on our own, which is not true. And Paul, who says, I cannot do this on my own. I am crucified with Christ. It is what Christ has done. It is the death, it is the crucifixion, it is the cross of Christ that makes possible all other crucifixions that Paul speaks of here. All other crosses. It is in his death, because of his love, that we can end, we can put to death, we can crucify the entities that are mentioned. So Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, not the end of myself as a person, but rather the setting aside of an identity apart from God. And I crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. This is a conscious moment by moment turning away from that which is natural to me to that which is my default setting as a sinner, that which is a twisted version of what the Creator intended. And Paul says, I am crucified to the world. The cross of Christ redefines everything. It redefined Paul. Paul was no longer the person that he was. The world said, well, wait a minute, this is who you are. And Paul says, no, that's no longer who I am. I'm someone else. The cross redefines all who are the children of God who have the Spirit of God and who are united with Jesus. That's the first thing that he mentions here is the cross. The second is the new creation versus the old creation. In verse 13, he says that they may boast about your flesh. And I would say this is old. This is old creation. Verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. This points to one of the identities that has been crucified, the world. The world itself has been crucified. In its place is to be a new creation. It might seem redundant to say that the old world has been crucified. But as we saw last week, Jesus on the cross is the turning point of human history. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, all of creation was under a death sentence. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. Well, in order to remove the death sentence and in order that there can be a new heaven and a new earth, that redemption can take place, the old world has to be put to death. And out of this death, out of this crucifixion, comes the new creation. The new creation begins with Jesus himself, his being raised from the dead. And it continues in the Spirit as the Spirit is given to us as God's people. And it is to overflow out of our lives and out of the life of the church into all of creation. It will go on, Paul tells us in Romans 8, until the whole creation is free from its own slavery. When it is freed from death and it will be renewed and it will share in the freedom of the glory of God's children. So there is the cross, there is the new creation. Thirdly, there is authority. Verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. I think many who read the letter to the Galatians might come away with the impression that Paul does not accept authority, that he was against authority, that he had rejected authority. And from the early part of the letter, this seems, if you have that point of view, it really will color how you read what Paul says. 
So in writing of his conversion in chapter 1, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And then in chapter 2 he talks about fourteen years later, that I set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear I was running or had run my race in vain. A few verses later, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. If you think that Paul is anti-authority, you can see that there's ammunition for that point of view in this passage. And then you have the confrontation with Peter. Peter is seen as the rock, the foundation of the church. And here is Paul confronting Peter and saying, you're wrong. And so in that sense, I think we sort of like Paul. He's very much, you know, I don't know, a child of the 60s, anti-authority. You know. um, then we come to chapter 3, and it's all about the law. How the law is, again, depending on your point of view, if you have a negative view, that it is bad. That it is a prison guard, it is a disciplinarian, it is a guardian, it is a trustee. And then Paul says in chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So it seems like Paul saying authority, bad, freedom, good, and that they are opposites. But that's not the case. Because we are creatures, it is required by our very by who we are, that we be under authority. We cannot be independent. Now, what Paul says about the law is that the law was there. It had a practical purpose. That purpose is now finished because Jesus has come. And Jesus came to to give us freedom. But the law still gives direction. So if you look at verse number 2 of chapter 6, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And in chapter 5, verse, 5, uh, verse 13, uh, 13 and 14, You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature of the flesh, but rather serve one another. Serve one another. The entire law is summed up in a single command, Love your neighbor as yourself. We are under authority. We are to follow this rule, Paul tells us. And and what is this rule that he's talking about? It is the centrality of the cross. That in Jesus we find redemption. We find the world being put aside. It is being crucified. And new creation has come about. We have new identity as the people of God. We're not to look to the old identity. But we're not to try to win a new identity. But it is in Christ that we become new creations. The fourth thing that Paul talks about here, the people of God. Uh, He says in verse 16, even to the Israel of God. As I mentioned last week, this is the only place we find this in the Bible. We've already had hints of this, that those who put their faith in Jesus are in fact the children of Abraham. Understand then that all who believe are children of Abraham. That's chapter 3, verse 7, verse 9. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then the last verse of chapter 4. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And there it is. Those who put their trust in Jesus, the crucified Messiah, are the people of God. But then this raises the question, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? 
Well, this could be a series of sermons in and of itself, but let me suggest to you some avenues of thought for you to consider. The first thing that I would tell you to consider is that we should not make the Jews and the law synonymous. I think that's a mistake that many people make. We should not think that the Jews are a people without the law. They were, in fact, a people long before the law came along. They were in Egypt 400 years before they went to Sinai. So they were people long before the law. Now, the law did come to define them as a people, but they were a people long before the law uh, came about. I think because the law defines them, that's created the confusion. And so we think Jew, law, law, Jew, and that you can't separate the two. And the second thing I would remind you of, this I would tell you this, but this is reminding you, is that Paul tells a series of stories in the first four chapters of his letter. And the story of the law is, in fact, a story within a bigger story, the story of Abraham and of faith. The promise to Abraham was to accomplish the redemption, not only of a people, but of creation. It's, it's funny how we look at passages from a particular point of view. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked about divorce. And it's a, not a long passage, but beyond what we want to look at today. But what I find interesting is that he says in part, Moses gave you that command, but it was, uh, from the beginning, it was not that way. In other words, the law is a sub-story within something that is a greater story, and then when Jesus is asked about divorce, he doesn't go to the law because that is a temporary, that's a sub-story. The bigger story is of what God intends for his people and his creation. The law is temporary. It was designed um, to advance a larger project. And that project is fulfilled when Jesus comes into the world. Paul tries to make this clear in this letter that the law had the purpose of bringing the Jews to maturity. And Jesus, in fact, was Israel that came to maturity, and therefore the law's function was fulfilled. God's purpose was keeping his promise to Abraham to have a people of his own. This remained. This means that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have what scholars have known to be call continuity and discontinuity. That is to say, there are things from the Old Testament that remain into the New Testament and beyond. But there are things in the Old Testament that do not continue into the New Testament, into the New Covenant. When we think of continuity, we think of the world as God's creation. That doesn't change in the New Testament. God is still the creator. Um, and when Paul speaks in, in Athens, that's one of the aspects that he says, that God is the one who created the world. When he speaks in Galatia, and they think that he is a God, he said, no, God is the one who created the world. Secondly, God has promised to deal with evil, and that doesn't change in the New Testament. God made a covenant with Abraham, and that covenant remains to the present. In the Old Testament, we have the call to holiness, to genuine and renewed humanness in contrast to the dehumanized world of pagan idolatry and immorality. And that's why in our prayer of confession today, we have no problem reading Psalm 32. Someone might say, well, that's, that's Old Testament, that's Old Covenant. Yes, but there is the call to holiness. And that remains with us to the, to the present. And so we can read that today as New Testament people. 
Well, what about discontinuity? The things that don't carry over into the New Testament. Well, we are told very plainly in Mark 7 and in Acts 15, the purity laws, uh, the dietary laws, do not carry over. The temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system do not continue. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation 21, an amazing passage, they're all amazing, but in this particular sense, the New Jerusalem is described this way, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That's the discontinuity. We no longer need a physical building. We who are united with Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is no holy land any longer. The promise that was made to Abraham, as Paul sees it in Romans 4, is not simply for a strip of land, but the entire world, heir of the world. And perhaps most importantly, the wall that divided Jew and Gentile, that has come down. That's Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. That no longer exists, or it's not supposed to. That's why Paul confronts Peter. God's project of reclaiming and redeeming his people and his creation has not changed. Some aspects in the program have changed, but his project has not. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Imagine that you have a group of travelers who sail across the ocean great distance to reach their destination. But when they finally reach the distant shore, they get out of the boat, they leave the boat behind, and they continue their journey on land. We might ask, why did they leave the boat behind? Why did they they leave the ship behind? Was it because the ship was no good? Was it because that part of the journey was no good? No. They leave the ship and the voyage behind precisely because both the ship and the voyage accomplished their purpose. They got them to this point in the journey, and from this point on, we walk or we ride. We're on land. And so you have, in a sense, a continuity. They are still traveling, but you have discontinuity. They're no longer doing it by ship. And this is, again, not to disrespect the ship, to say somehow it was worthless, it was no good. No, its function has been set aside. Now, to continue the illustration, supposing some people want to join. They want to join this this group of travelers, these pilgrims on their journey. Do they say, oh, no, 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 You, you have to go back and get on the ship. Go back to the ship. You, you have to do the ship thing before you can travel with us. No. They're on land. I think this is the point Paul's trying to make to the Galatians. These travelers we can call Israel. And the Galatians who have joined these travelers are also Israel. They are the Israel of God. The fifth thing that Paul speaks of here is persecution. This is verse 17, which... We did not look at last week. Verse 17, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The first thing to keep in mind here is this is really in contrast to circumcision. The men from Jerusalem want to make marks on the flesh of the Galatians. Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. The Galatians knew about Paul's persecution 
not simply anywhere, but in Galatia. This is from Acts 14. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left there for Derbe. Uh, Galatians knew. They saw the scars, the marks that Paul had because of persecution. Persecution is to be seen as the expected response to the gospel and the preaching of the cross. Paul told us at the end of chapter 4, that is, you know, the children of the slave woman persecute the children of the free woman. This is to be expected. Not only that, suffering is something that is a part, it is seen in Paul's writings as something, a part of what it means to be a Christian. In Philippians, Paul tells the believers there, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, that part we like, to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. In other words, to be a Christian means, in fact, that we are to suffer. Again in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. It's also part of Paul's calling. Uh, We see this from the time he was converted. This is from Acts 9. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, that is Paul, who was blinded at this point on the road to Damascus, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We studied some time ago Paul's letter to the Colossians, in which he wrote... Now I rejoice in what I was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul already had in his body the marks of Jesus. Now, the word in Greek is stigmata. The root word is actually stigma, which has come into English. Now, this has come to mean something different in various religious traditions, particularly among Roman Catholics in which Paul is taken literally. That is to say, it is believed that Paul had uh, the nail uh, prints in his hands and in his feet, as well as uh, where the spear went into the side of Jesus. I don't believe this is what Paul is saying. But within the Catholic tradition, this has evolved. The first stigmatic that we know of was Francis of Assisi. Um, And there have been many cases since then. But I don't think this is what Paul is saying. The word stigmata is used in non-biblical sources, to mean being branded. That is, a slave was branded as belonging to a particular master, in the same way that cattle are branded today. Jews didn't do this, but there was the practice of voluntary slavery. If a slave wanted to stay with the master after the seventh year, a hole would be pierced through the ear to say, you now belong to this person. Well, Paul says, listen, I belong to Christ. Don't let anybody hassle me, cause me trouble. We're talking about circumcision. Listen, I bear in my bodies the marks of Jesus Christ. I belong to Jesus. And as Peter wrote in his first epistle, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, I suspect that what I've just said about suffering is probably not new to most of you. You've you've heard this before. But the question arises, at least in my mind, why does there have to be suffering? 
And we can answer, well, it's because we live in a fallen world, the world is broken, and so we suffer. Or we can say it is because we are Christians, the call to follow Christ, to follow the example of Jesus, as Peter has just told us, that's why we are supposed to suffer. But in some ways, that doesn't answer the question for me. If the world is crucified, and Paul has written of the new creation, why is there still suffering? And here we come to something that we saw in this letter. It is what we call the already but not yet of the gospel. With Paul, we affirm that something has happened, that something definitive has already happened in history. Not only the coming of Jesus the Messiah, but our union with him. We have put our faith in him. We are united with Christ. And the Spirit has come to live within us. This has happened already. But it's not yet finished. There is more to come. I think every human being has that sense of incompleteness and a sense of frustration that comes with it. The final words have not yet been spoken. Things are not the way they should be. But one day things will be made right. In the early verses of chapter 5, Paul tells the Galatians, in light of this already not yet, to do three things. First of all, stand firm. That's the already. Already Jesus has broken into history. Already Jesus has fulfilled the law. Already you are united with him in faith. Already you are the children of God. Already the Spirit lives within you. Already you call God Father. So stand firm. There is a reason. You have good reason to stand firm. At the same time, the second thing he says is wait through the Spirit. This is the not yet. Wait for the not yet. By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. There is more yet to come. So I am to stand firm and yet know that I am waiting. And thirdly, I am to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. Interesting here, Paul says some things that we hear in our last verses here. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In verse 5 we have hope. Here in verse 6 we have faith and love. Faith, hope, and love. Faith deals with the already. Hope deals with the not yet. Love unites the two together. And we, will, we are to love each other now. We will love each other in the future. There will come a time when faith will no longer be necessary. There will come a time when, faith, when hope will no longer be necessary. But love will always come to define us as those who are united with Christ. And then we come to verse number 18, the last verse, the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Earlier Paul wrote of mercy. Here he speaks of grace. When one speaks of grace, the emphasis is on the fact that we do not deserve God's goodness. One might ask, and particularly in this congregation, as our benediction usually comes from 2 Corinthians 13, which is very Trinitarian. Why do we not have a Trinitarian benediction here? After all, if you remember in chapter 4, 
after talking about the law, and I, I remember going through this, I, I just found it what knocked me over. I was expecting that Paul would say, law, 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 no, the answer is justification by faith. And Paul doesn't say that. What Paul says is Trinity. It was the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father who sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Paul's answer is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, to be justified, to be declared right in God's sight is important. Trusting and believing in Jesus, the crucified Christ, is important. But more important is the reality of the Trinity, the God who is the true God. So why not have a Trinitarian benediction? I think because, if I could read Paul's mind, the focus here at the end, as throughout this book, has been the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them, he wants the Galatians to remember who they are. So it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah. It is his grace that I want to be with you. With your plural spirit singular. You are one in Christ. Paul told him this earlier in chapter 3. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither male, sorry, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And as if to emphasize this fact of unity, Paul does something that he does not do anywhere else in his writings. He ends the sentence with the word brothers. Grammatically in Greek, this is a special position. In English, we would, we would put it at the beginning to show importance. Here Paul puts it at the end. He wants them to remember they are his brothers. For all the trouble that has gone on, his love remains unchanged. For all the severity of language in this letter, he assures them they are his brothers. And thus he ends this letter. He writes to his brothers and sisters in Christ, reminding them that the cross is in fact central. That's what the gospel is all about, not circumcision. And that with the coming of Christ has come the new creation. We are God's people. We are part of this traveling band. We are the Israel of God. But it's already not yet. We are already the people of God and yet we're not, we haven't reached the destination yet. In the process, we may in fact suffer for the cross. That's fine. Jesus suffered. We are his people. If we are united with him, why would we not expect to suffer as well? One thing that struck me, in my mind at least there's a connection somehow, in Matthew 25, those who are seen as the sheep versus the goats are those who help those who are suffering. You see, as Christians, we should not only say, okay, I'm going to hold on, sort of brace myself for the suffering. We are to look to those who are suffering and we are to help them. This is the call of the people of Christ. The old creation has been crucified. The new creation is breaking out. 
And when the old creation keeps rearing up its ugly head and suffering, we are to help those who are in need. I hope you've learned something from this wonderful book, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us. May we accept its authority, not see it as advice or suggestions, but as command. May we remember who we are, what Christ has done for us, that we are united with him. We have your spirit. We are your people. And yet there is that already not yet. And so we may have great joy knowing we are your people and yet suffer greatly for your name. Many of our brothers and sisters before us have have done precisely that. We should not expect anything different. Again, I thank you for your word and for this letter in particular that Paul wrote to the Galatians. I thank you for this opportunity to gather to worship you. First day of a new week. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?